We spoke earlier about what death is, how it works. We talked about the separation of body and soul, how each of the respective parts of man go home, how free will ends, and what happens to the soul is determined by the degree of enmeshment that the body and soul have at that time. How severe is death for the soul? It depends. If the soul is immersed and enmeshed in the body due to the free will choices of the person when they were alive, then the death of the body severely affects the soul. Whereas if the soul was holy and lofty and spiritual and living on the spiritual plane, it did not get enmeshed in the body, then death is quite seamless. The transition from this world to the next is very pleasant or benign. Now I want to take the discussion to the next stage and to talk about the practical aspects of this, what we could do about it, what we ought to do about it, how to prepare for the day of death. And we're going to start from the basic, maybe the general principles, and we'll try to move out to the more specific principles of death and dying. On the most basic level, this question of how to prepare for your death is the question of how to live your life. The mission tells us this world is like a corridor leading to a ballroom. If you're traveling down a corridor, the goal is the destination, the ballroom at the end. This world is like the corridor and Olaba is like the ballroom and that door, that's death. You're preparing your whole life for your moment where you're going to die and transition and change your universe from this world, the world of the corridor, to the world of the ballroom. Now, of course, we're not used to thinking about this world as transitory. Just like the we spoke about earlier, last time, we spoke about how the body or the baby in utero, that's the only world you know, there's a door Once the door opens, you see that it's a much bigger universe. And the transformation between this world to the next world is similar, even though our universe is a lot bigger than a womb, it's still much smaller compared to the actual world, the next world, that we are going to be introduced to. In the words of Rabbeinu Tam, one of the great medieval sages, our life here is like living in a small, cramped, claustrophobic cave in a desert underneath the earth. And when you're in this cave, you are certain that there's no other world besides for the one that you're in. You've never seen the outside. But once you open the door, once you leave the cave, you see vast lands and the heaven and the oceans and the constellations, and the sun, and the moon, and the stars. In our world today, we're sure there's no other world. But once we leave, we see the vast expanse of the next world, and it is much bigger and much more comprehensive. The venture into the unknown, of course, terrifying, But in truth, it's like leaving a small cave and going to a much bigger universe. 
we actually do believe in the multiverse theory. We believe that the size of our universe, the physical one, is as small and insignificant relative to the spiritual worlds, just as a cave is insignificant to our world. I have a pet peeve, as most of you know, of calling the afterlife the afterlife. It sounds like it's the after party. You have life here, and there's something else that comes afterwards. The truth is that this world... It's pre-life. The afterlife is life. Just like a baby in utero during gestation is preparing to come to this big bad world. This world is just a bigger version of that. We're in this big cave, but still relatively tiny compared to what we're actually aiming for, life itself, after the corridor, past that door, into the ballroom. So our whole life over here is really about preparation for death. So the question of how to prepare for death on a more, on a most kind of general level is really how do we live our lives? The Talmud tells us that he who toils before Shabbos has food to eat on Shabbos. He who does not toil before Shabbos, from what shall they eat on Shabbos? Once Shabbos comes, you cannot prepare any more food. Cooking, baking, Preparing food is prohibited on Shabbos. So if you want to eat on Shabbos, you must prepare for it ahead of time. Now, this is not just good housekeeping. This is the understanding of our world. You're in a preparation corridor before the ballroom. You got to make sure yourself, you got yourself in order. You're ready. You're prepared for entering that ballroom. This world is not a world of consumption. It's a world of preparation and toil for the consumption. The Talmud tells us in the book of Shabbos, page 30a, and again, this is on a very basic and general level, a person should always involve themselves in Torah and mitzvahs before they pass. Because once you die, you no longer have the opportunity Dumitzos, in the small cave, that's the only place that you can prepare for the big world. In this long and narrow corridor, this is the only place we can prepare for the ballroom. And the way you prepare is with Torah Mitzos. And that's why you better invest the time now when you still can for your time in the ballroom. Now, we spoke about this a little bit earlier in the previous discussion. That preparing for death is another way of saying preparing to live as a soul. After you go through that corridor and after you enter the door to the ballroom, you're a different person. You're comprised of different things. Your body is left behind in the corridor. It's the cadaver that's useless. Got to bury it. Once you enter the ballroom, you're living as a soul. What is death for the soul? For the soul, death is freedom from bodily incarceration. The soul reviles being subjected to a body. The soul is the holiest thing. The holiest creation of God is the soul. It's holier than the angels. 
But in this world, in that unnatural binding, that unnatural marriage of body and soul, it is suppressed and submerged into a sinful, physical, animalistic body. For the righteous who develop their spiritual halves when they're still alive, for them, death amounts to a form of liberation. Now they can enjoy the spiritual world and the spiritual pleasures without any impediments, without any distractions, pulling them back. They can study, do mitzvos. You don't need to stop for lunch. You don't need to have a coffee in the morning. You don't need to be burdened by any of the needs of the body. For someone, on the other hand, who has not developed their soul and the soul's agenda during their lifetime, death is a very painful experience. The soul is liberated, but it's damaged. Maybe parts of it are left behind. It's freed to fly, but it doesn't know where to go. It's free to enjoy the spiritual pleasures, but it never trained itself to develop a taste for that. If you have not developed a taste of spiritual pleasures when you're still alive, you're brought to a smorgasbord of spiritual pleasures and you don't know what to do. There's a cornucopia of spiritual enjoyment available, but you have not been trained. You have not trained yourself to learn how to partake in this form of pleasure. So one level up here is the idea about life here is about preparing for death, not just because that's what life is about, it's the corridor. It's about training yourself to develop a taste for the pleasures of the eternal existence. When you do a mitzvah here, why are you doing the mitzvah? On this level, you are tasting coffee for the first time. Try wine for the first time. First time you taste it, it doesn't really taste like anything. You're developing a taste for spiritual pleasures. You study Torah, first time, you don't see the appeal. Why are Jews obsessed with this? Doesn't make any sense. Where's the appeal? You're trying something for the first time. But you're developing a taste for the spiritual pleasures. Charity. Why would anyone give charity? It makes no sense. You have less money afterwards. You're developing a spiritual half. Kindness. Why would it help someone else? How does it benefit me? You're developing a spiritual half. Prayer. I'm talking to some invisible entity I can't see, I cannot interface with in any way. You are developing your spiritual life. You're flexing your spiritual muscles of the soul. You're training yourself for that world in the corridor when you only have a soul. What does it mean to prepare for death on this level? It means to learn how to live as a soul. For the righteous, death is the expansion of horizons. For the wicked, think about it, it's actually kind of terrible. On a certain level, it's actually good for them, you know, because if someone is wicked, they're doing more and more sins, and you're way better off to stop doing the sins before it gets out of control. Death is actually good for, well, at least on a certain level, for the wicked because you can't do any more sins. But it's terrible for them because their whole world was built upon an understanding of what matters, and all that doesn't matter anymore. They've invested in something that's now useless. They have no idea 
how to live as a soul. It's also terrible because it's more painful for them. It's a nightmare to disentangle their halves from each other. Their soul is mangled and damaged and needs a purification. It may indeed undergo the worst verdict, reincarnation of one version or another. What does the Russia, the sinner, have to look forward to? I think there's a certain irony here. You ask a wicked, what's your plan for the afterlife? They may say afterlife, there is no afterlife. This is all you got. And you know what? The irony is they are actually correct. Because for them, they have very, very little to look forward to in the afterlife. So this world, in fact, is the only world that they have. But that's not us. We're trying to do the right thing. What can we do to prepare ourselves? So we talk about generally speaking, that's what life is all about. It's about going down the corridor, preparing for the trip into the ballroom. Mitzvos are developing a taste for the spiritual world. We're going to be unleashed. Let's at least know what to do once we're unleashed. Let's train ourselves for life as a soul. But more specifically, let's get into the nitty-gritty of actually how to prepare for death. And again, we're going from the more basic to the more advanced. The Mishnah tells us, Shuv Yom Echad Lifnei Misascha. Return, repent, one day before you die. Now, when is that? So we learned in our previous discussion that no one knows when they're going to die. So it could be today, it could be yesterday, it could be tomorrow, it could be 100 years from now. We don't know. What kind of advice our sage is giving us? Return one day before you die. When is that? The answer is it's every day. Because every day can potentially be that day. You don't know when you're going to die. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be in a year from now. It could be in 10 years from now. We don't know. But we want to make sure that whenever that day does come, we repent for it. Now, this is actually quite comforting. Because even if someone is a sinner their whole lives, and they return on their deathbed, the money accepts them. Our just tell us that a sinner of their entire lives who repents, not a single one of their sins is invoked before the heavenly tribunal. So something very comforting about this idea that you could, oh, if you're alive, you could still repent. An amazing insight. Now the Talmud takes this idea a little bit further. Listen to this. This is the Talmud Book of Shabbos, page 153a. It says the same idea. Shuv yom Return, repent, one day before you die. The sages asked, well, when exactly is that? You don't know when you're going to die, and therefore you should repent today, because maybe you're going to die tomorrow, and then you will give the keys back to the Almighty, so to speak, and you are good, you are clean. And then the Talmud quotes a verse in Ecclesiastes, At all times you should wear clean clothing. You're walking into a ballroom. Make sure that you're ready. You never know when you're actually going to reach that door. Make sure you're dressed properly for that 
experience. And then the Talmud gives a fascinating analogy, a fascinating parable. Amar Rabbi Yochum Zakai. Rabbi Yochum Zakai says, a marshal, a parable, a king. King invited all of his servants to a feast. You are hereby invited to a feast by the king. But he didn't reveal to them exactly when the feast is happening. So his servants fell into two camps, the wise ones and the fools. The wise ones got ready, they got dressed, they made sure that they were wearing the makeup in the words of the Talmud, and they were sitting at the door of the palace waiting when will the doors open, when will the feast begin. The fools, they went to do their job. They went to their work. They went to chop their wood. They went to dig out their coal. They say, you know what? The the king, it'll take him some time to prepare. And suddenly, the king summoned everyone. And the wise servants, well, they were all ready. And they walked in and they were dressed for the party. And the fools are all blackened with soot. They walked in dirty. And the king was very happy to see the wise ones. And he's very angry at the fools. And he said, those who have adorned themselves, who have prepared for this, for the feast, they should sit down and they should enjoy. And those who did not prepare themselves, those fools who came in dirty, you stand and you watch. So too, explains Rashi, in Omaba, the righteous are sitting and enjoying, and the wicked are standing and watching. This is an amazing analogy of life. The Almighty is inviting us to a feast. He just did not reveal the precise time when the party starts. And death is when we open that door and enter the ballroom for the feast. And we're going to be ushered in front of the king. We must repent every day. We must make sure that we are spiritually ready to meet the Almighty because we never know when the day is. Make sure you're ready. If you repent the last second, you're ready. If you regret your mitzvahs that you did at the last second and you descend, then you're a rasha. Your state at the moment of death, that's your final state, at least in this iteration. And that is how you are going to present yourself before the king in the feast. So there's an astonishing takeaway out of this. Your day of death is the most important day of your life. Your whole life is about this invitation that you have from the Almighty. You're being invited to a feast. And your whole life is about preparing for that feast. And the day where you actually get invited in, that's the day of death. So it's the most important day of your life. The death is that crossover moment from this world to the next. It's a day when we enter the ballroom. It's the culmination of all of our life's work. It's something that we need to prepare for. Now, there's another angle to this. We have to use the concept of our temporality, of our looming demise, to fuel ourselves. Talmud tells us 
that there is some force that's trying to get us to not prepare. We're in the corridor trying to prepare and there's a force that the Almighty sends to us to try to distract us. Hey, look at this nice things in the corridor. Hey, isn't that nice? Let's settle down and make a picnic in the corridor. Let's have a good time. Don't prepare for the feast. Don't worry about it. You'll have enough time later on to prepare for it. That force is known as the Yetzirah, evil inclination. That's its job. And Torah is the antidote. Torah and mitzvahs are the ways to thwart the Yetzirah. How do you thwart the Yetzirah? Says the Talmud, the book of Brachos, page 5a. One of the ways that you do it, the most effective way that you do it, is you remind it of your day of death. The goal of the Yetzirah is for you to forget that you're in a corridor and you're heading towards a ballroom. That's the goal. Get distracted. Settle down. This world really matters. Make a picnic, etc. You don't need to worry so much about your clothing. You'll have enough time to prepare later on. That's the Yetzirah. When you remind the Yetzirah, you remind yourself of the day of death. You're like, I know that this door is going to be somewhere. It's coming. That completely neutralizes the Yetzirah. Now, this idea is echoed elsewhere in the Mishnah, the beginning of chapter 3 of Perkevus. Histakel bishloshad varim. Look, visualize three things that you'll never sin. Know from where you came. Know to where you're going. And know before whom you are destined to give a reckoning and an accounting before. Where you came from a putrid drop. Where you're going to? A place of worms and maggots. And before whom you will give an accounting before the Almighty. There's something very nuanced over here. In these two, in these two sources, in these two citations, we're told to remember the day of death, and we're told to visualize where we're going to. There's something very nuanced here. It does not say, remember that you are going to die. You know, the ancient Stoics had a concept called memento mori. Remember your death. It's a very productive exercise that even the wise men and women outside the Torah world, they understood, they appreciated. It helps put your life in perspective. The Stoics knew about this day as well. But there's a nuance that we're adding here. Not that we're adding to them, but there's a nuance added over here in our sages. The Mishnah is telling us, you have to remember the day of death. The day of death. It doesn't say remember that you're going to die. It's not like an abstract concept. Remember the day of death. Visualize, histakel, visualize the worms and maggots gnawing at your flesh. What our sages are advising us over here is to take an abstract concept. We know, everyone knows this. A child knows this. We don't, of course, like to think about it, or maybe we're afraid to. But to take a concept and make it real, make it vivid, make it visual. Visualize your passing. Imagine it. Think about what your friends are going to say. Think about what your enemies are going to say. Your friends will say, oh, I really miss him. Oh, he was a good guy. 
ah, I wish I could have a beer with them right now. And your enemies are going to say, oh, good riddance. We finally got rid of that scoundrel. If you're lucky, you'll have a Jewish funeral. You'll be washed in a mikvah, wrapped in burial shrouds. If you are very, very, very fortunate, you'll be buried in Israel. You'll pass in Israel, be buried there. Less rolling. What that means is the subject will cover much later on. Not in this discussion, but later on in the 13 principles. Jacob, of course, in Parshas Vayechi, he wants to be buried. He's, he dies in Egypt, but he stipulates, bury me in Israel. I don't want to have to roll there myself. Visualize that. Visualize what it's like to be lifeless. Visualize what it's like to be lowered into a grave. Visualize them dumping dirt on you. If you are adventurous, you can think about the worms and maggots ready to feast upon your body. This is not memento mori. This is not, oh, remember, life here is temporary. This is about taking something that terrifies us and makes us scared and nervous and unsteady and puts it right in front of us. The verse says in Ecclesiastes, Tov l'aleches al-beis avel b'aleches al-beis mishta. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Why? For it is the end of every man and the living will take it to heart. Everyone knows that life here is temporary. Everyone knows that. I am not telling you something you didn't know. But knowing it and going to to a funeral is a very different experience because you don't discover something you didn't know, a fact. Oh, wow, what an amazing fact. People here die. That's not what you learn. You have a strong, palpable, visual, visceral reminder of this. And when you think about that, that's a very powerful way to prepare for it. The Yates are trying to distract us. In the corridor, make the picnic. Don't worry about the feast. You'll have enough time to prepare for it. It's okay. There's so many other things to do here. If you visualize the day of death, everything that happens on that day, you visualize what it's like to actually die. You remember that the Yetzirah wants to distract you, to live for this world alone, to favor the body, to ignore the soul. He wants us or it wants us to settle for spiritual mediocrity. But to spend, of course, the lion's share of our time and energy and focus and resources and intellect and talents towards advancing the material life. You go to a funeral, you visualize the day of death, you think about the day of death, the worms and the maggots, you are now violently confronted with your mortality. And you realize that the only thing you actually have, your only assets that are truly yours, that's your Torah and that's your mitzvahs. That's the only thing that's actually yours that will accompany you forever and ever. The Mishnah at the end of Perkeva says, at a time of someone's death, what accompanies them? Not their money, not their gold, not their silver, not their gems, not their diamonds. Only their Torah and mitzvahs. 
quotes a verse in Mishlein Proverbs. When you walk, it will accompany you. When you go to sleep, it will guard you. When you wake up, it will be your conversation. When you walk, it will accompany you in this world. When you go to sleep, in the grave, it will guard you. When you wake up for resurrection, it will be your conversation. Choosing what we live for, that determines everything. Choosing what we prioritize in the corridor determines our eternal state forever. What are you living for? What are you investing in? Your body, its whole universe, its whole agenda is Enron. If you don't know what Enron is, Enron was a massive company that was a total sham. Everything seemed to be swell. It's a money-making machine taking over the energy world. Incidentally, based out of Houston. The smartest guys in the room. But it was a total sham. A total Ponzi scheme. Everyone who was involved went bankrupt. That is what the Yetzirah is selling you. He wants you to invest in Enron. Come here, the smartest guys in the world. We'll make so much money, be rich, more of the fat cats. He's trying to get you to invest in Enron. Once you reach, once you reach the door, Enron is now worth zero. Nothing. When you remember your day of death, when you visualize this, when you visit the house of mourning, you're reminded in a very visceral way that you must prepare for the spiritual world. So it's a very valuable thing to ruminate upon because it's going to help us live our life properly and prepare for our transformation, for our crossover, for entering the palace. Now, when I was preparing for this subject, I read a few chapters in my grandfather's book and I saw something amazing He says that everyone has to start preparing for death. And when is the appropriate time to start preparing? When is the appropriate time to start preparing for your death? So Rabbeinu Yonah says something fascinating. When you reach half of your days. Which, of course, by the Torah's measure, the average lifespan is 70 years. So when you reach 35 years old, that's when you start preparing for your death. If you're younger than that, the whole subject is too debilitating. Halfway there, now it's time to start preparing actively. Now, when I read this this past week, it really hit me hard because, you know, we celebrate two birthdays. I have the Gregorian birthday, December 5th. I have the Jewish birthday, which is the fourth day of Kislev. And right now, I'm between birthdays. So I always say I have like a month-long birthday between the Jewish date, which was a couple of weeks ago, and December 5th, which is in a couple of weeks, and I'm turning 35. I just turned 35. So it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Now is the time to start preparing according to our sages. But what does it actually mean to prepare for death? So listen to this. This blew my mind. It's amazing and profound. The verse tells us in the book of Devarim, Deuteronomy, You shall love Hashem your God with all your hearts, 
with all your soul. with all your resources. This is, of course, the beginning of the Shema. What does it mean to love God with all your soul? Afilu no even if God takes away your soul. This is the source that we have to forfeit our lives in martyrdom should the opportunity arise. Now, I was always under the impression, and I'm sure most people are, that there is, you know, one in a million chance where someone comes to you and say, hey, repudiate your relationship with God, puts a gun to your hand, says, give up God, for- forfeit God, or what's I show you? In that case, we're trained. You have to give up your life for God. You have to love God even more than your life. I always understood that the whole idea of martyrdom is completely the outlier. It's a one in a million case. Listen to what we read over here. Every single person, every single death is actually an opportunity to die in martyrdom. When a person is about to die, the angel of death is there and the person maintains all the same pettiness and flaws that they had during their lifetime. The Midrash tells us a person has at least half of their desires unfulfilled before they die. Because you know what? If you fulfill the desires, you just get bigger and better ones. So you never actually accomplish 50% of your ambitions. You're full of ambition. You're full of dreams. You have plans. And Son of the Almighty says, no, I'm stooping you away. All your plans are over. You're now mine. Give me that soul. It's time to usher you to the next world. At that moment, at the moment of your death, you're going to see the angel of death and you have no hope to escape from him. At that moment, you are likely to feel rebellion, mutiny, insurrection against God. Your whole life you're living with faith. At the critical moment, you've slipped and become a heretic and heathen. And if you say, well, maybe I can still be saved. Maybe I could be resurrected by the, by the defibrillator. Maybe the wise doctors could save me. And you refuse to yield before God. In effect, you're dying amidst heresy. This idea that we have to love God even in our death applies to all of us. What does it mean to prepare for your dying? What does it mean to prepare for your demise? It means to bend the need to God at the moment where it's most critical. To invest your life with such love of God. To really favor that spiritual world. That to not rebel at all at the moment where God comes and takes that away. So we said earlier that the day of death is the most important day of your life. The moment of death is the most important decision that you make. Will you do it with love of God or will you rebel? And if you rebel, you end off your life as a rebel against God.
So of course it's the most important day because that's the day when we cross over and we enter the corridor. We get invited to the feast. But precisely that moment is going to be an opportunity for us to die in martyrdom as a lover of God or to die as a rebel. Someone who rejects and repudiates God. And the way we die determines our state forever. Every person is encouraged to die a martyr for God. What does it mean to die amidst repentance? It means to bend the knee to God. In fact, Talmud actually says, to bend your knee is featured on the day of death. And to do that without rebelling at all. To be ready for that requires a half of a lifetime of work. From the age 35 and up, you are constantly, or not constantly, you don't want to get too crazy, but part of your spiritual agenda is to prepare for that moment. Now, this is a very novel idea to me. I assume to most of y'all listening, it's also a very novel idea, but it's a fascinating one. We think of of death, something we'll face, you know, when we're 70. Even if you open that envelope that we spoke about last time, you open up the envelope and you find out the day when you're 98, you're going to die. All your choices leading up to that moment are going to determine what that death is actually like and what state you're in when you enter the ballroom. Are you going to be prepared? Are you going to have those white, nice clothing ready to go? And the second you enter, they get dirty. The final challenge, or maybe the ultimate challenge of our lives, is to be ready for that moment and to not reject and not rebel. And therefore, the concept of death should never be too distant from our, from our mind, from our consciousness. I uh, said this story before in the past. I'll say it again. My grandfather had a student who witnessed a fatal car crash. And he was so shaken up that he ran to my grandfather to find out what to do. So my grandfather said to him, did you say vidui with the people who were dying? Did you say confession with the people who were dying? We know that there's a special confession you're supposed to say on your deathbed. Did you go say it with them? Now, most people don't know the confession by heart. So he said to my grandfather, who knows the confession by heart? Do you know it? Most people don't know it. So the truth is, in the Siddur, there are two versions of the confession. There's the long version, and then there's the short version. But my grandfather said to him, every person must know the confession by heart, because really, all of life is preparing for that moment. And you want to do it properly, because if you do it improperly, your whole life is captured in that moment. And your eternal destiny is determined by your state in that moment. So you better know that confession. Well, what exactly is that confession? So it's six words. Tehei, this is the short version. Tehei misasi kapar al-kovanosai. Let my death be an atonement for all my sins. It's a certain acknowledgement and acceptance of God's decree and a prayer for total cleansing. The way that you present yourself before God is the way that you die. And therefore, it's very critical to die properly and you have to make sure 
Are you prepared for that moment? Death is scary. It's terrifying. But why is it terrifying? Most people think it's because it's the unknown. I will argue that it's very much known. Your body has stopped working, become a paperweight, become a liability. They dig a hole, put you in a box, lower you into the hole. Simple. What's unknown about that? I have a theory. I have a theory as to why death is terrifying. All the people who think about it are humans. And humans have a soul. And the soul is permanent. We are permanent beings. We bear a permanent soul within us. And the notion of impermanence irks us. It disturbs us. It violates our sense of self. And that's why death is so terrifying. Because death, at least on the most basic level, for people who are just living as a body, death is the end. The party is over. And no one wants to end because we're all internally designed as permanent beings. But when you realize that you have a soul and the soul lives forever, death, in fact, is not terrifying at all. It's what you're preparing your whole life for. Now, a corollary of this, now a corollary of this or component of this is that we have to remember that we're going to come back alive as well. On a very advanced level, the body is not forever separated from the soul at death. The soul goes back to its origin, but it is destined to once again be reunited with the body. In a recent partial podcast, we talked about the bone. There's a part of your body that's like a seed you plant the seed in the ground, and it grows. Just like if you take a uh, any any seed, an apple tree seed, you put it in the ground, it starts to decompose. Unless you've been trained, you assume it's dead forever. It breaks up, it's, it's over. But what do you know? Something sprouts and blossoms from the ground. Burial is akin to planting a seed. There's a part even the body that's still alive and it's germinating beneath the ground to be resurrected not only is our soul permanent the truth is at least on a very basic definitional level the body is permanent too if we know that there's no reason to be fearful of it at all But maybe a bit of fear is good because it reminds us of what we need to do. It reminds us to be vigilant. It reminds us to repent every single day. It reminds us to never have the notion of our pending demise never allowed to get too far from our mind. The mission tells us, don't believe in yourself. You have to have constant vigilance to make sure that your clothes are clean and don't believe in yourself until the day of your death. 
the great Rabbi Yochanan Zakai, the great sage of the first century of the common era, the Talmud describes his deathbed. The students came to visit him. And when he saw them, he started to cry. Why are you crying? His students asked him. So he responded to them, if I'm going to see a king, a human king, a king of flesh and blood, and that king, well, that king is, is temporary. Today is alive, tomorrow he is also in the grave. And if he gets angry at me, it's not forever. And if he punishes me, it's also not forever. And if he kills me, it's not forever. And I could cajole him with words. I could bribe him with money. But if I had an audience with a human king, I would be crying. I'd be terrified. But now that they are bringing me before God, king of all kings, who's alive forever, no term limits. If he gets angry at me and punishes me, it could be forever. If he kills me, it could be forever. If I try to appease him with words or bribe him with money, it doesn't work. Not only that, continues Rabbi Yochum Zakai, I see before me two paths. One leads to Gehenna, to purgatory, and one leads to Ganadin, to paradise. And I don't know which one they're going to bring me upon. I shouldn't be terrified. I should not be crying. This is a very good reason to cry. I was thinking, if Rabbi Yochum Zakai, one of the greatest sages of our history, the student of Hillel, the teacher of Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yehoshua, the leader of Jewry in Judaism at the destruction of the Second Temple, if he was unsure which way he will be judged, we too cannot be too confident. We must prepare for our day of death. We have our marching orders. We know what to do. Life here is about preparation. Mitzvos, developing a taste for the spiritual world. and More specifically, being ready for that moment. And making sure that we arrive at that moment with love of God and acceptance of His decree upon us. That is a lifetime of work to be ready for it. Never allow that idea to get too far from our consciousness. Don't, I would say, ruminate upon it at all times because that could, could drive you crazy. But you know what to do. And now, when you're alive, before it's too late, we know that it is up to us. I hope that we all live very long and fruitful lives, but lives that are never too distant or focuses that are never too distant from this very critical and imperative idea. We are not here forever. The only thing that will accompany us for all eternity, it's not our gold and silver. It's not our precious gems and diamonds. It's only a Torah mitzvah. And we should act Accordingly, don't invest in Enron. A bad idea. My email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com.